the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, how to fight and win an interplanetary war on $25 a day. Mars farts. Potential Martians want to go there anyway. Knights team with demons and days with training for war. And part 36 of the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. Coming up, we have part two of an interview with Bain author Tom Kratman. We continue our discussion about Tom's very extensive military background and then talk about his new novel in the Carrera series, Come and Take Them. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. But first, associate editor Laura Haywood Corey joins me for the news. I want to take a moment to point out the great free content that's available at the Bain.com website. Every month on the 15th, we update with at least one new short story and one nonfiction article. And the fiction pieces are usually related to an upcoming new book, right? Yeah, since new hardcover and trade paperback-sized books usually debut on the first Tuesday of a month, we put up a story by the author about two weeks before and leave it up for a month so we can build some anticipation for the upcoming book. And, you know, also provide great reads by great authors, of course. Well, and the stories usually have something to do with the upcoming book, I've noticed, they might take a minor character from the Booker series and make him or her a viewpoint character yep. or maybe give them their own side story to explore. Yeah, and the nonfiction pieces are also often related to upcoming books as well. For instance, this month we have a new piece on human exploration of Mars. This one is written by aerospace journalist Terry Burleson, who did that great uh, Columbia piece that we had back in September. And it's an examination of the technology and the psychology of the Mars One project. This is the idea for a one-way trip to Mars and the people who would volunteer for it. Sounds fascinating. I'm actually on their mailing list to get their updates because I think it's a really interesting project. And we also have a Mars story by Ben Vova, I see. Yep. That one is somewhat humorous, somewhat dire also, hard science fiction. It's about a trio of explorers stranded on Mars and trying to survive. It's called Mars Farts, by the way. I can only imagine what that title may be referring to. Oh, I think you get the picture. We also have an all-new short story by David Drake. It's a fantasy story, actually, and is a tribute to Dave's old friend, the writer Manly Wade Wellman, who's also a, a favorite of mine. One of my favorite David Drake novels is also a Wellman homage, by the way. That is the book Old Nathan. David Drake's collection of dark fantasy and horror, called Night and Demons, will be out in December. So that one's connected to the collection in spirit, we should say. Aha, uh -huh, in spirit, yep. And finally, we are continuing uh, with Tom Crapman's examination of what it takes to train an army to fight. Tom argues with the whole hearts and mind doctrine and, and really gets down to brass tacks. He knows what he's talking about. He was uh, He's a retired lieutenant colonel from the U.S. Army. Sounds interesting. So that makes, by my count, four new free pieces at the Bain.com website. So seems like Christmas has come early at Bain.com. Yes, indeed. Ho, ho, ho. Now dash away, dash away to Bain.com and check them out. And now here is part two of an interview with Tom Kratman, the creator of the Carrera Military Science Fiction Series and the Countdown Military Adventure Series, among others. Here's the interview. So the units uh, are divided along ideal lines instead of geographical lines. Is that what you're saying, or have I misunderstood? There's seven grids. Um superimposed over the country of Balboa. You know, think of the top grid as being combat arms, and they take the youngest for the most part, new recruits. 
And, and which grid you go into pretty much depends on your age, to some extent your, your intellect, um, your sex, your sexual orientation, things like that. Um, so grid one is combat arms. Grid two is combat support, engineers, artillery, air defense, things of that nature. Grid three is service support and headquarters. It's where the military intelligence types come from. And that grid three tends to pull people from um, that are older. Like if you're 60 years old and you decided you want, want to volunteer, the odds are really good you're going to end up in grid three and end up in a service support regiment. Even though you will exist, you will have lived at the same time in seven different recruiting grids. Don't ask me what the other seven are. I can't remember off the top of my head, but they're in there somewhere. Why would this be the way to organize a near-future, highly technological army? It's not really Roman, you know. Oh, sure, it's got some of the trappings, names, ranks, and such. That's a deliberate attempt to enslave the past in the service of the present. But the organization in the early parts is just a purpose-designed counterinsurgency division. Um, while in the later parts, the, the legions transform to more or less conventional infantry or mechanized division with a few illustrations along the way to show how to get from A to B. In real life, that's harder than it sounds. Um, wait and watch while the U.S. Army attempts to extricate itself from the current general officer-mandated organizational lunacy. I mean, sure, you know, any general worth of salt would come up with an original stupid idea. But to resurrect an old stupid idea, the Pentomic Division from the 50s, and call it new, that takes genuine four-star chief of staff levels of idiocy. Anyway, the key is in, in book one, Desert Call Peace. Down in the basement when Carrera shows Fernandez a per chart, a performance evaluation review technique for an army sufficient to defend the country from all comers, he tells his troops he's not serious about it. But he is serious about it, at least to the extent of wanting to be uh, ready to expand if he has the chance, the money, and the need. Uh, the per chart goes from the um, final project, Nation in Arms, backward to the initial formation, which was a single big brigade that he can afford, um, and fills in all the gaps in between, and, and also the ones that go into that brigade. I actually did that, by the way, or most of it anyway. Uh, a friend, John Miller, who is a former active bar fly, former Army truck driver, IT guru, formerly in North Carolina, now living in Maine, sent me a, a updated modern per chart program where I plotted out most of the steps from starting with nothing uh, and raising to raising a brigade formation um, and then every step that goes between that and building this huge nation in arms. Um, I did, as I said, I did most of the major steps. Actually, I think I did all the major steps and a fair number of the minor ones, too, if I thought they were significant. That, by the way, the PERT chart is what it shaved a couple of years, supposedly, off the development of the first generation of nuclear missile-carrying submarines, Polaris subs. Okay. Um, there's also a big split between the tactical an operational organization and the administrative organization and procedure back home. I, I call it this tercio system. Um, that's sort of my way of saying, hey, Army, here's how to get a lot more divisions for the same manpower. Not that anyone's listening. Um, and it was all really kind of tough because Final Wars is going to be conventional, um, but conventional tables of organization aren't particularly well suited to the initial war, which is counterinsurgency. Uh, you know, it's tough changing. You end up short formations. You end up extra formations. You can't simply move people around. It's like undermining the law. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that. Uh, I think it's fair to say that you loathe and despise the idea of turning the military into a, a sort of benign police force, the, the heart and, hearts and minds uh, methodology. Uh, but... Also, special forces tactics um, are not the way to win a conventional war. I don't. I think you've you've said before. Um, beyond guerrilla war, uh, how can a smaller military take on a behemoth? How's the the big battle going to shape out? I mean, don't give us don't give too much away. But I've got the Balboans painting the Torrin Union as a giant. Why? Well, a couple of reasons. One, because people tend to think that way. You know, they measure the objective and the physical and ignore the moral. Napoleon knew better than that. And, Two, because Carrera is building up the torrents to make the victory seem even greater later on. He wants a country that's a little bit like Vietnam. You know, Vietnam beat us. We, we should be honest about this. They beat us. And they're not afraid of anybody at all. They're not afraid of China that is so much huger than they are and has a land way to get at them. You know, that's what he wants, is that kind of a country that's afraid of nothing. Because uh, he's got big plans, you know? Um... That said, TU is not strong. They're rich and they're large, 
And they've got a substantial military force, but they're weak. They can't take a punch. You know, they can't take the kind of blood he's going to extract from. Um, they will fold. And, of course, uh, I don't know if you've read the next one after come and take them, but he's been planning to hurt them for a long, long time in ways that they can't do much about and in ways that will demoralize. Well, let me ask you one other question that occurs to me. Since we're talk, talking about Carrera's seeming uh, indifference, it seems to me that your a, a big theme of all the Carrera novels is that um, to to win, you have to be ruthless, and you have to even um, be willing to perhaps even destroy your own uh, moral system in the process. Carrera, there's a wonderful scene in Come and Take Them where he confesses to his priest. Uh, it doesn't really change anything he's going to do. <laughs> you know, I can go to hell. It's okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll confess, but I'm not going to change anything. Yeah. Um, yeah, Carrera is, like I said, he's, he's, <laughs> he's a very, very odd character. Um, I can't say that I actually like him. Um, but do you think that it takes somebody like him to win? Well, no, people have won wars without being like him. But in his particular circumstance, with a little country that's trying to, you know, eventually liberate two planets, yeah, it probably takes somebody like him. And if you think about all the military, you know, sociopaths throughout history, Alexander the Great, you know, okay, that's one. Um, Napoleon, yeah, there's another one. And they both did good things. Because at some level they were sort of humanitarians and Democrats. Uh, I mean, Napoleon became emperor to safeguard the revolution, and by and large he did safeguard the revolution from, from its own lunatics. Um, well, it, it's, it's a matter of safeguarding the revolution by destroying the revolution, I think, but, you know. Well, no, I mean, the, the, the revolution, things have gotten really weird. Um in, in France, I, I, it, it's way beyond the scope of this talk. Yeah, let's not. We, we probably shouldn't get into that. But no, I. Yeah, but he didn't return. You know, he didn't return us back to uh, where Lafayette could take over or something like that. I don't. Let's not go there. <laughs> we could have an argument, perhaps. Um. Yeah, he, he was. Uh, he was not unmindful. That monarchy is one of the three good forms of government, put it that way. Uh, anyway, the F-26 rifle is... I, I personally had thought that there was no real possibility for serious improvements in small arms. Then I started digging, and I came up with almost everything. In fact, I think everything in the F-26... I'm sorry, with one exception that is actually my own idea. Everything else in the F-26 exists. Electric ignition uh, of cartridges, um, semi-combustible casings with metallic or plastic stubs, um, the, uh, the very high rate of fire uh, that's in a Russian uh, a Russian assault rifle that looks like an AK, but inside it is not an AK. Um, and what it does is, while it's extracting in one direction, it's loading with something else. I changed it a little bit, but uh, same basic idea. Um, the only thing that's actually mine. I think in that rifle is the ratcheting system that keeps the spring tight on the magazine. I think that was it. Um, everything else exists real world now. Or could be made to exist just by slapping something onto a, a rifle. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the quote, by, oh, oh yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, something, uh, the barrage balloon. The, the um, barrage balloons are, of course, old tech. goes back to World War I. Um, the aerial mines, though, the Russians have, uh, or the Soviets had, and I suspect the Russians still have, something called a Estrella block, which was a, an anti, a shoulder-fired anti-aircraft missile in a mount that had an acoustic receiver. When it heard an airplane coming, it would arm itself, and then if the airplane got within a certain envelope, it would fire itself at the airplane. It would lock on and fire at the airplane. Well, he mounts them in the barrage balloon. Okay, that's that's not an innovation exactly. That's just taking two unlike things that exist real world and matching them together. Um, 
Well, I hope the friendly pilots have uh, have some kind of mechanism to tell that gun that it's them. Yeah, everybody's got an IFF. That's not a problem. Everyone has IFF. And he only uses them in certain places, and, and so they can stay away from where, where, they, where it's densely covered. Uh, but on the other hand, they're very, you know, they take friendly fire very philosophically. <laughs> so, okay, if, we, if one of us has to be killed by friendly fire to get one of them, and if one of us, if that one of them isn't gotten, that one of them will get two of us. Let's take the risk with a friendly fire. You know, it's, it's kind of a philosophical approach. Well, let's. I mean, let's let's take a step back and talk about uh, the science fiction setup here. Uh, although I, I know sometimes you don't consider it as important, uh, but you you do have a pretty cool idea. Can you tell us about how what Terra Nova is and what the the transitway is and the Noahs and such? As far as the Noahs, we don't know. They were here. They set up a game preserve, a wildlife refuge, and then they moved on. They're not from here. Um, they probably created the wormhole that linked Earth and Terra Nova. On the other hand, maybe they just found one and used one, or maybe they found and used one and created another one and destroyed the one they found as they were leaving. We just don't know. We know we haven't found another one. Uh, but maybe we've been looking in the wrong. The science part of it, it's more social science fiction. The science part of it's not that important, but I didn't totally blow it off either. Um, we know that the space around the wormhole, around the wormholes is bumpy. That's a term of art, being in effect somewhat similar to space at the time of the Big Bang, when the rules were different and the speed of light is believed to have been much faster than it is here and now. Anyway, we never found any trace of them on Earth that we know of. Uh, there were some artifacts found on Terra Nova, but we can't guess at their use. All right, all right. One of them is a cake batter spatula. <laughs> I haven't explained it, but if I ever get down to it, it is a cake batter spatula. Um, in other words, it's purely mundane and has absolutely no bearing whatsoever on anything. It's totally useless. That's why it ended up getting left behind. I think a really cool idea you have is the fact that there are poisonous plants on Terra Nova that kill intelligent species. So it, the, the planet's programmed to not let an intelligent species evolve. And, and it seems to me that, that, that they set it up so humans could come there. I haven't firmly decided on this, but I, I think if I ever have to explain it, the explanation is probably going to be that the Noahs came and smashed mankind pretty much down to rubble for a while and then extracted all the wildlife they wanted, put it on this other planet, and, and they thought they were just locking us away and saving some wildlife. But we're more resilient than that. We got out by a fluke. So the um, well, let's get back to the, since it is social science fiction, that is, it's concerned with uh, military and politics. What's the political situation on Terra Nova, um, and, and how has it developed? You, you say it's, a, it's an analog with Panama. I assume you mean uh, Central America is, your, uh, is sort of your... Well, I mean, Balboa itself is an analog to Panama. There's a lot of analogs, but they're not just arbitrary analogs. Um, there's a reason why the nation-states of Terra Nova tend to represent uh, or be very similar to and derived from nation-state's birth, which is that the first attempt at, at colonization, which was a very politically correct, multiculturally sensitive, equal representation of everybody, turned into a total freaking disaster, uh, and the ship was basically destroyed, left in orbit, rendered, un rendered unusable, most of the people killed, and a, bare, you know, a, a few handfuls of survivors ended up on the planet cut off until someone came to rescue them, because... Rodney King notwithstanding, no, we just can't all get along. Um, so after that disaster, they decided to push it down to, not to, to countries for the most part, but they, the U.S. turned the, the ability over to the U.N. The U.N. wanted to give it to countries, pushed it down to supranationals like NAFTA, Mercosur, uh, the Torin Union, uh, excuse me, the European Union. And they further, not wanting any more disasters, because they wanted to get rid of as many old-fashioned nationalist types as they possibly could, um, went with national colonization plans. They, you know, they divided up the planet, parceled it out to the supranationals, who further divided it up and parceled it to the countries, uh, based pretty much in their clout on the earth as it was. 
they're, they're not necessarily barbarians, but they, they do kind of devolve. But, for example, the Saudi Arabia, do you think Saudi Arabia is really all that comfortable with the number of outright, you know, lunatic Islamic fanatics they have? No, those people are a threat to the Saudi regime. So they're going to go out of their way to get rid of as many of their own particular homegrown loonies as they can, which is, and they've got more than most. So that's why the, you know, one of the reasons why Muslims are more of a problem there than you might normally expect, because the worst ones get sent. Not merely nationalists, but the true fanatics are the ones the Saudis want to get rid of. Not just the Saudis, there are others too, the Egyptians, the Iraqis, all of them want to get rid of as many nuts as they can. Um, Understandable. Anyway, so that's, and, and they go there, some people go there with advanced technology that quickly breaks down. Some people go there with no technology and they have to try and start basically with rocks. And some people go with, you know, something that can be created without a great deal of effort. Uh, oh, not without, not without a great deal of, some with the technology that can be recreated and sustained um, there. You know, they go over with flintlock muskets because you can find flint. You can make gunpowder. Um, you know, some people went with just bows and arrows. That's all they could afford. Or the government didn't trust them with arms, uh, even on another planet. That probably happened, too. Um, anyway, so that, that's what, it, it's a fairly close match of birth, but it's not exact. There is, for example, no Australia. Um, there is a much smaller island that is not where Australia would be called Atlantis, and that's something that the uh, United Nations took as their own base on the planet, um, as their own little reservation. Uh, you know, some of the some of the cities are in similar locations. Some are not. Um, any city that was named by Australian immigrants tends to have an odd name to it. Um, wherever it, it is, like there is at least one Australian city in the Federated States called Gagandai. They happen to settle down near a whole bunch of transy trees, and you know what happens then. Let's shift gears and talk about Carrera as a character. Um, this is this is the thing that that really stands out in the series to me, and the reason I like your series so much is that he is uh, he's relentless. He's over the top. Uh, maybe not to you, but to, perhaps to the to the regular reader. Um, and something made him that way. Yeah. Well, he was always see. I'm often accused of Carrera being a Mary or a Marty Stew. Yeah, of course, because every writer wants his Marty Stew to be a sociopathic maniac. Uh, yeah, exactly. He's absolutely, I'm surely a sociopathic maniac. And in fact, I'm sitting here in chains right now because I'm not trusted to walk around free. Um, yeah, Carrera's over the top. Um, he was always a nut. But his wife controlled it. Um to the death of his wife at the hands of terrorists, his chains are off and the monster is loose. Uh-huh. I find a lot of poetic justice in that. So where are we now in come and take them politically? What has Carrera done? Uh, what's the situa- the political situation in the in this two-system Earth, Terra Nova, and on Terra Nova? Well, it's, it, there's not a lot of Earth in, in come and take them. It's, it's, there, are, there are people from old Earth High Admiral Wallenstein, who is, I actually like a great deal. Oh, she's a great um, character, yeah. And her, her lead. He's, he's got everything ready for a war. He just needs them to start it. Um, uh, on, on the other hand, his boss, knowing how, how much a war is going to cost, um, his country wants him to try to make peace. He's a little reluctant to do that, and he's very reluctant to compromise his ability to win the war. But he goes along. I mean, he's, he's a soldier. He, he follows orders better than I ever did, anyway. Um, I was a very difficult subordinate in the army. So, you know, he, he actually does make an effort to make peace uh, within his own particular limitations. He can't disarm. He just could never bring himself to do that. But he can convinced because it doesn't matter. It doesn't hurt his plans any. He can show the um, the tourists that are occupying the Balboa Transitway area that his army is much tougher than they think it is. And he, and he does try to do that. Most of his urge to revenge is, is taken out against the Salafis. And it's not even against all Muslims. He's got Muslim allies. Most Muslim allies. Um, 
know, people he really cares about at a personal level. Um, but he, he despises, even though he's created unwittingly a socialist workers' paradise, limited socialist workers' paradise, in Balboa, um, he really hates progressivism. He really hates foreign union. Not revenge, I mean, it's hate. Uh, and a sort of fear. Uh, he doesn't know what old earth has become or how vile it is, but he doesn't want that happening to his descendants, even though he could easily arrange for his descendants to be in the ruling class. He doesn't want it to happen to anybody's descendants. Um, operationally, though, I, the way you do, uh, a little country like Balboa defeats a big alliance like the Foreign Union, a lot of it depends on the shape of Balboa. It's relatively narrow. Um, it's got relatively few ports that happen to be in the center of the country. That makes the Torin Union and Zhang both, you know, predictable as hell uh, because of the, their, their own logistic needs. And then, because the country is so narrow, the huge Balboan artillery train means that any landing on either coast, there is no safe zone. They can pound all the way from the coral reef to the front line, um, which, in order for the, the the Torrens could do that, but they don't have the same kind of artillery train. They've got, they've got um, a large air force. Uh, but, and he can't beat their air force. All he can do is he can, he can force virtual attrition by making them assemble large strike packages. Um, and he can, with his own air force, which isn't particularly small, but it's not up to date, and his own air defense umbrella, he can deny them the ability to fly freely for limited periods of time. So he can loft his own air force, unmask his own air defense umbrella, and gain himself anywhere from a few hours to 24 hours of maneuver time without the torn air forces being able to interfere very effectively because of how much they have to go through to fight their way in to interfere. So they'd have to punch pretty hard in that in that moment where they're where they they're not where they're free of the air threat. Yeah, they do. They've got to punch pretty hard, and they've got to move. They've got to attack about 20 miles, give or take. Um, that, you know, 20 miles is doable. Give uh, heavy enough artillery prep, it's, you know, it's not even that hard. Um, so, uh, you know, but, it, yeah, it's, it's, the, it's the shape. I harp in a lot of my books on, on shape as a principle of war. It isn't officially. It's just one of my principles of war, my little addendums. Uh, what do you mean by shape? Nine or ten. But shape is, well, you should ask, really, what do I mean by principle of war? A principle of war is, is it's not part of a checklist to, you know, to victory. It's a guide for study. It's a defense against stupid theories. Um, and it's a, a short phrase or word that illustrates a constantly operating, constantly effective phenomena in war. Shape... Uh, I gave it in, uh, if you go back to the article that I wrote on decision cycle theory. Yeah, for the, from the Bain website. Look up Luke Yeah. It was a... If, if you uh, look up the Bain you'll see that Epaminondas and his Thebans echeloned in three echelons. He had his main effort on his left, then a much weaker group in the center, but spaced well back, and then a very weak group over on his right, um, that's an illustration of shape, one illustration. Those people were back so that they would not get engaged. They, they adopted that shape so they wouldn't be engaged and crushed before Epimenides was able to achieve a decisive effect on his own left. But shape is also it's about time-space relationships. It's about you know three dimensions on the ground. Um, in, in Balboa's case, it has to do largely with the narrowness of their country. That, that has a particular effect, and it opens up some particular opportunities uh, to someone trying to defend their country against that country against the invasion. You know, the island that's out in the uh, in the middle of the Mar Furioso um, is uh, where that sits. Its shape, uh, where, where that sits, once it's armed with sufficient long-range artillery, you know. Principle of war, sh war shape dictates that that island has to be taken, or you can't land on the Mar Furioso coast 
because the island will keep you from being supplied if you do, because of its its positioning, because of its shape relative to the country. Yeah. So basically, I mean, Balboa is a smaller country, and they are facing down the Tarn Union, who are who are backed up by the Earth governments. Is that a assess, fair assessment of the situation? The Tarn Union at this point in time, yeah. The Federated States is a little bit neutral. <clears throat> They're a much more militarily serious power than the uh, Tarn Union is. They have got a lot of affection within their armed forces for Balboa, which has been providing mercenaries, actually technically auxiliaries, um, to them for the various, for at least two military campaigns. Um, you know, they sort of know that Carrera is not their enemy, sort of not their enemy, although he could become their enemy. Um, but he's got friends, he's got connections, so he doesn't have to worry about fighting the Federated States much. It's possible he's, you know, he treads a little lightly around them, but because um, he's not a fool, he's just a maniac. Uh, but the, yeah, the Torin Union, which is the most uh, progressive polity on Terra Nova, um, some of them recognize that Balboa is a philosophical threat. Um, some of them, Marguerite Wallenstein, for example, the, the High Admiral from Old Earth, I've dropped hints. I don't recall that I've ever made it absolutely clear. She wants the Torin Union to win a war for a war's unifying power. She expects the Torin Union to come out of a war, even a small war, as long as it's successful, as a real country, rather than a collection of states that can't stand each other, um, pushed around by politicians that everybody detests. She, she expects a real country out of it. But her ultimate uh, loyalty lies back on Earth. Her ultimate loyalty lies to her, her own people. She doesn't like Earth's system. I mean, she was, she was a class, too, which is fairly high up, and she was still treated like dirt most of her life. Um, you know, sexually used and abused, uh, used and abused in other ways, too, corrupted. Um, she really doesn't like the system, but if she can end the problem of Terra Nova, she'll have enough political pull maybe she thinks to change the system. Um, you know, it's one of the reasons, I, I mean, she's done some bad things, but she knows she's done some bad things and she's sort of trying to make amends as best she can. And she's, knows she's she knows she represents a rotten government and a rotten system, but she hopes she can make, she has a plan at least to make it better. Um, like I say, I, 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 a lot of people like Marguerite, actually, and I, I like her myself. No, uh, she's a wonderful foil for. I mean, you have to give Carrera somebody that's that's at least you know his equal in some way, so he can uh, make a fair fight of it. And she she serves that purpose admirably. She's very yeah, she's subtle in some he's subtle in some others. I think he understands how she's subtle, but she doesn't really understand how he's subtle. What she's got is the high ground and maybe somewhat better technology than he has. She can recon, but she can't recon in his head, um, which is the real limitation on, uh, on her use to the war effort is, it, you know, it's all in Carrera's head. If they could kill him, if they could get to him and kill him, and they've tried, um, things would turn out very differently. But since they haven't killed him, and since he is a maniac, and since he keeps almost everything in his head, um, you know, it, it, her... What she brings to the table isn't as decisive as you might expect. Anyway, yeah, Marguerite is, uh, actually, I, I, I like her a great deal. Um, and I'm not sure what to do with her, actually, later on. I, I haven't figured out. I don't want to kill her. Well, I've got another plan, but I'm not what, what I'll probably do with her. But I'm not going to say what that is. <laughs> well, don't tell us. We'll find out. <laughs> we want to find out in a, in a novel. Well, let me let me go on to uh, a, a lot of uh, come and take them is about military preparation, which doesn't seem like it might be a, a riveting sort of uh, thing to examine in a novel, but you, you make it so. One of my favorite parts is when uh, these visiting officers, Jan, Captain Jan Campbell and uh, Major Chris Hendrickson, uh, I guess they're Tarin Union security force officers, uh, they come over and spend time with the... Uh, one of the Tercios, uh, one of the, the I guess it's brigade-sized units that are uh, that in uh, Balboa, 
And it, it takes Jan a while, but she slowly comes to understand that this is a fundamentally different sort of military force than the one she's used to. And uh, it, it, she was really, uh, really amazed at all the live fire exercises. What value did showing Campbell the second, uh, second tercio, I believe it's called, serve for Carrera? And, and what is, um, tell us about the training and the, the preparation he's making for this war he sees coming. Second tercio is one of the better tercios. I mean, he, he basically solicited opinions on who he should shunt these people to. And the reason he shunted them there is, again, he's been ordered to try to keep the peace, to make peace. Um, and within his limits, uh, within what he's willing to do, which isn't, I mean, there's a point at which he will not obey orders, showing that he's just much, that the, uh, the legions of Balboa and the Legionis del Cid are just a much tougher nut than anybody in the Torin Union expects, is his way in, of frightening them into peace without compromising some of the other things that he intends to use. I mean, the second tercio is not, not, none of the regular tertios, actually, are particularly key to winning the fight if the Torin Union invades in that first invasion. They're, they're important later on, but not for the first invasion. So he can show them how tough they are while still keeping his ace in the hole, which I'm not going to mention, you know, read the book, people, uh, <laughs> while keeping his ace in the hole um, hidden. In, in fact, it really kind of, if, if anything, showing second tercio helps him keep those other troops that very few people know about hidden by focusing poor and attention on the regular formation. Yeah, so it's the classic uh, uh, misdirection. Part, it's sort of indirection, yeah. Um, as the training is just, um, I think of it as kind of mundane, but I'll, I'll admit there are very few militia formations uh, in the world that would be able to do something like that. The Israelis probably could train that way if they chose to. Swiss could, and the Swiss get people, you know, people don't realize how big the Swiss army used to be. It's gotten a lot smaller lately, um, or how hard they trained when they trained. Uh, the Swiss could have done it, maybe not now, but 15 years ago they could have done it, uh, or put on that good show. Oh, by the way, it's actually not Major Hend- Hendrickson, it's Sergeant Major Hendrickson. <laughs> oh, I see. He's the NCO. Yeah, and then, you know, again, the idea, I... I said whether they went any further, harder, or more dangerous in Second Tercio's training period um, as or then others. Uh, I've left it open, but it is possible that they might have just to make the right impression on Campbell and Hendrickson. Well, I mean, what they're doing is, you know, they let mines and explode a few meters from the troops. Uh, they, you know, they put them in a situation where they really experienced something close to battle. As close as you can get, I suppose. Do you, as a retired uh, soldier, think this is uh, the way to go, or is it just something that you put in the book because that's the way Carrera would do it? It's the way the 193rd Infantry Brigade in Panama would do it. We were a very unusual brigade. You know, most places in the Army, if somebody got shot or, or otherwise killed and hurt in training, they'd stop everything. Not the 193rd. The 193rd or the Ranger Regiment was similar. Uh, they call in a dust-off for the wounded and dead. And um, just keep on going. That was, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not me nor Carrera necessarily. It's, it's the whole 193rd was just like that. So there's a, there's an actual analog is that from, uh, from your experience. Interesting. Oh yeah. There's virtually nothing that I show in training um, that I haven't seen done with my own eyes. There are a couple of things. The force on force. No, I've never seen that done, although I know how it is done. I had a friend, well, more of an acquaintance in Panama, who had been in the Waffen-SS in World War II, and he explained how you actually do a force-on-force live fire. It, it, it can be done reasonably safely. Um, where reasonable to find is you only kill people every now and again. Um, but else, yeah, pretty much what I've, I've seen and do, seen or done myself. You put in the ambiguity of it. You, you have someone die, um, that is, and you show the, the sadness of that. Um, you don't, you, people get killed in these live fire exercises, but it's a price that they're willing to pay rather than, um, it being black or white, that this is great and we have to do it and it doesn't matter who gets killed and, uh, or this is horrible. The authenticity that you bring toward understanding operations in the military is something you seldom find in other uh, in in a lot of military fiction at all. 
Um, it, it, it really has a been there and done that feel to it. Uh, your books do. I don't think it's a spoiler to say that, um, we haven't seen the end of this, this brewing conflict that, uh, we have at the conclusion of come and take them. Are you working on a sequel? What other developments do you have in mind for the series that you can tell us? Uh, the next one that I'm going to do, I tentatively entitled The Pillar of Fire by Night. There's a reason for that title, uh, two reasons actually for that title. One is the general sort of old slash ancient phrase, um, that and the, um, the huge fuel air explosive bombs that have been left out on the, um, on the countryside. That a project volcano uh, as an R and D project. Um, anyway, that that will cover the um, a Torin Union uh, invasion, uh, the the second invasion actually by the Torin Union, uh, and um, what happens with there after that. He's going at, or probably actually during that, um, he'll be going after the the um, United Earth Peace Fleet. And I'm not going to say how I do how they do that. Nobody's going to like it. <laughs> I mean, it's going to be the kind of thing people don't want to believe is true. I've been wanting him to go after them for quite some time. <laughs> so. After that, a couple of volumes of um, Hamilcar is going to be uh, ordered to take an invasion fleet and attack slash liberate Old Earth. And there's only a couple of scenes in that that I've got fixed in my mind. If you can... Uh, Cortez's conquistadors on the, the big pyramid in, in Mexico City, tossing the idols down and putting an end to the human sacrifices. I'm going to replicate that at the Arapacus when the, uh, the Neo-Azteca are, are sacrificing, uh, you know, young girls on the, on the Augustus's altar of peace. Well, it sounds... I'm looking forward to writing It sounds really cool. Uh, Hamilcar is Carrera's only surviving son, by the way, if, for those who don't know. Um, what else are you working on or thinking about? I've heard you mention the Naval Battle of Lepanto as something you, you're particularly interested in. Do, we, do I smell an alternate history, perhaps? No, not for that one. Um, alternate histories, I want to do two. Um, one is uh, Zay Adler, on which I've done an absolutely frightful amount of research and thought. Um, and planning, uh, which is a German invasion of England commencing on 27 May 1940. Uh, it, and it's amazing how much that pisses off, particularly Brits. <laughs> you mention it. Because, you know, it's part of their myth that it, it was just, you know, it couldn't have happened. No. They were in such shape on that day. And they started getting better very quickly. But on that particular day, and maybe for two days thereafter, they're in horrible shape. Um, I've got a not insubstantial bookcase up in my living room that's full of books for that, books and CDs and other things. And I don't know how many sites bookmarked on my computer. Um, the other one I want to do is an alternate civil war where Lincoln loses the election in 1860. To McClellan. And uh, that gives Dred Scott, the, Dred's, oh, the real implications of the Dred Scott decision, a chance to run. Oh, the first were, Lincoln election you're talking about. Oh, very well understood. But how does Lincoln lose? It, it actually hinges on Ohio. And, and But in order to make Lincoln lose, I've got to keep Daniel Webster from being killed or dying as a result of being thrown from his horse. Okay. Um, that, that's actually the, the only crux I've been able to see is save Daniel Webster. He runs. Lincoln loses. Uh, that gives Dred Scott a chance to run. And the effect of Dred Scott was that slavery could not be outlawed even up north. So what happens? Massachusetts secedes. And instead of Fort Sumter, it's a federal fort, uh, Fort Warren out in the harbor that gets bombarded by Massachusetts militia. Um, and with Massachusetts gone, all the other northern states who also hate slavery, well, it works the same way as it did in, in the real Civil War. South Carolina left, which unbalanced the Senate, and all the slave states except for a few where slavery wasn't quite as important, left because they were afraid it was going to get outlawed. It lost the Senate. Well, with Massachusetts gone, all the other northern states have to leave because there's no way they'll ever be able to get rid of slavery, even in their own states, in a union where they're outnumbered in the Senate. So it's a civil war where the where the North, uh, where the for the unionist of our civil war, the one that really happened, are the secessionists. Sounds like a great idea to me. I love it. Yes. The book we're talking about now is "Come and Take Them." the latest entry in the Carrera series. It's now in hardcover at booksellers everywhere and available at BaneyBooks.com. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. No problem. Thanks for having me. 
And now we continue with our complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you're not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. Okay, here's what has gone before. After a fierce war, Honor Harrington's star kingdom of Manticore has entered into a simmering low-level conflict with the ancient aristocratic Solarian League. The Solarian League is crumbling and on the verge, a region at the edge of its empire, rebellion is brewing. The Solarian Office of Frontier Security is in charge of keeping the peace on the verge. Brutal tactics and puppet dictatorships are par for the course for the OFS. Rebels opposed to the oppressive regimes can't hope to match the military might of the OFS without outside aid. Aid they are receiving in the form of weapons drops by agents claiming to represent the star empire of Manticore. But it's a ruse. These agents actually serve the shadowy Mason alignment, eugenic supremacist, who wish to see the Solarian League and the star empire at war. Royal Manticoran Navy Admiral Michelle Hinka, Countess Goldpeak, commands the Royal Manticoran Navy forces in the nearby Talbot Quadrant. Goldpeak is sympathetic to the rebels, but is looking for the right place to strike a blow on their behalf. Now she has discovered a series of false promises made by Mason agents masquerading as Star Kingdom operatives. It seems the moment for Goldpeak to make her move in the Talbot Quadrant, is fast drawing nigh. Here is part 36 of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. Chapter 27 Captain Peter Clavel frowned grumpily as he checked his chrono for the third time in the last 15 minutes. His relief was late, again, and Clavel didn't like the rumors he'd been hearing. All very well for General Yardley to announce a general offensive against the rabble-rousers and malcontents, but she wasn't the one out here in command of a checkpoint whose relief was dragging in late, again. And she wasn't the one wondering if maybe this time his relief was late for a reason nobody would like, or if some terrorist son of a bitch was going to come along and ruin his entire night when he should have been safely back in his quarters while some other poor bastard took over the checkpoint in question. God knew it had happened to enough other guardsmen in the last two or three weeks. He scowled at the thought and reminded himself that it would be a very bad idea to say anything like that out loud where it might get back to internal affairs. Defeatism was well on its way to becoming a capital offense, and at least one other field-grade officer Clavel knew had been posted to one of the penal battalions for sedition, when she'd questioned an intelligence appreciation of general public support for the terrorists who'd taken down the White Whore. Against that sort of backdrop, suggesting General Yardley didn't care diddly about how many guardsmen she might have to sacrifice to make this particular omelet, probably came under the heading of something other than career enhancement. And given the sort of welcome a member of the Presidential Guard was likely to receive from the citizens of Mobius this day, it wasn't as if Captain Clavel could expect much of a career in the civilian sector. Most jobs tended to go to people who were still breathing, after all. Not that he wouldn't have been simply delighted to embrace some other form of employment if he had been able to find it. Clavel sighed heavily, tipped back in the Scorpion's command chair, and yawned and stretched, hard, before he crossed his ankles and clasped his hands behind his helmeted head. It wasn't that he had any qualms about breaking heads if the president told him to, he reflected. That was his job, after all, and Sveen Lombroso understood that men and women of proven loyalty deserved to be rewarded. The perks that went with Clavel's career choice were fairly awesome when he came down to it, and it wasn't as if the work had ever been especially difficult. Break the occasional head, send a few unionists or protesters to the hospital— Oh, the occasional stint guarding one of the concentration camps, make your own quota on arrested malcontents, all fairly straightforward and routine. 
if there weren't enough protesters or genuine malcontents around when you needed them to look good on your annual efficiency reports, it wasn't too hard to find someone to stand in for them, and it wasn't as if the courts were going to waste time listening to protestations of innocence anyway. There'd been the occasional, very occasional moment when Cadet Clavel, or even Lieutenant Clavel, had questioned the system and his own participation in it. But Captain Clavel, older and wiser than those younger personae, knew someone had to maintain order and public discipline, and if the someone in question was rewarded for his efforts with special privileges, better pay, and the respect which the authority he represented properly deserved, that was no more than he merited for all the sacrifices he'd made. And he'd never much worried himself about the intelligence puke's claims that hundreds of plots against the presidency simmered perpetually away. He'd never seen any sign of it, at any rate, not on any organized basis. The people who might have made real trouble knew better than to cross swords with the guard or poke their heads up to be broken. Until the May riots, at least. But the riots and the White Horror attack had changed all that. Now, every time he looked around, someone was painting anti-government graffiti or vandalizing a government office or a system unity office or sabotaging public transportation. The police were everywhere, backed up by the guards' ominous presence more and more openly. Arrest totals were soaring, and executions were climbing, and system information and news made sure the proles knew about it. Commentators and government spokesmen underscored the many ways in which a tiny handful of malcontents, rabble-rousers, radicals, and anarchists like the so-called freedom fighters— of the thoroughly misnamed Mobius Liberation Front, poisoned the society around them. Presidential news secretaries bemoaned the imposition of the ever-sterner security measures which a handful of violent extremists had made necessary, and the way in which those measures intruded into the lives and personal affairs of the huge majority of citizens who wanted only to obey the laws and get on with their own lives. Stern penalties, however reluctantly enforced, were the only argument vicious criminals like the Liberation Front seemed able to understand, however, and so the president had found himself with no option but to seek the death penalty for crimes against the state, in hopes that imposing that punishment upon those whose guilt had been proven might deter others from their predatory actions against a law-abiding society. And beneath the surface, behind the newsies and uniformed law enforcement personnel, underscoring the drama of public trials, convictions, and sentences, were General Matias's secret police. No one spoke about them, not openly, anyway. Everyone knew they were there, but no one knew who they were. They did their work in the shadows, without fanfare or glory, accountable only to their own superiors, General Matias himself, and the presidential special courts, whose task it was to deal with the most hardened enemies of the state. It was their invisibility that made them most intimidating, the knowledge that they were perpetually on guard, unseen and ready to pounce. And it was the silence which enveloped and erased the enemies of the state with whom they dealt, which deterred the troublemakers who might otherwise have dared to defy the forces of public order. Yet now the system which had worked so well for so long found itself confronted by a level of unrest verging on outright insurrection in some areas, such as it had never before experienced. Despite the newscasts, despite the spokesmen, despite the public arrests and the rumors of secret arrests, despite the publicly announced executions and the unexplained disappearances of agitators and protesters, anonymous posters became daily more aggressive, more vituperative, on the public boards. The graffiti multiplied, The vandalism spread, and government employees had been assaulted. Over three dozen of them had been hospitalized, and one of them had actually died. And just trying to keep count of the ever-mounting avalanche of threats against trifecta employees was using up more and more police resources, not to mention guard resources, like Clavel's own Scorpion platoon and the infantry platoon attached to it while they sat here guarding the approaches to Summerhill Tower. He understood the need to reassure Trifecta's personnel of their own and their family's safety, but parking this much firepower in the middle of a residential district in the middle of the night seemed a little excessive. But 
perhaps it wasn't, he thought. After all, things had gotten even uglier over the last week or so. They'd been fairly quiet here in Landing itself, since the Trifecta Tower attack, anyway. But just the day before yesterday, a mob had gathered outside a regional police station in the city of Granger, pelting it with stones and improvised incendiary devices in a protest over the hanging of three convicted seditionist agitators. Eleven officers had been injured, two of them, seriously, before the mob had finally been dispersed, and there were conflicting reports about the anarchists' casualties, although SINS was flatly denying the ridiculous claims that over sixty of them had been killed. Clavel didn't know about that, although he rather hoped the newsies were wrong about how low the anarchist casualties had been. The more he heard about the way things were going out in the boonies, the more in favor he was of showing the yokels the error of their way before things got completely out of hand, or even spread to landing, for that matter. Some of his fellow guardsmen scoffed at his worries, and he was careful not to be too vocal about them. But he heard things, even when he wasn't supposed to. Like that shootout in Brazelton, for instance? SINS hadn't so much as mentioned it, and even the guards' daily intelligence reports had treated it as only one more minor incident in a sleepy little town of no more than a hundred and twenty thousand or so. Clavel wasn't so certain, though. True, Brazelton wasn't landing, and the security assets concentrated here in the capital were a lot better than anything a provincial town boasted. And, true again, they were talking about small-town cops, who probably hadn't a clue what real security measures were all about. But even having said all of that, he personally might have argued that the assassination of a city police chief and the successful ambush of his entire six-man security detail came under the heading of a fairly major incident, no matter where it happened. Of course, everybody from General Yardley on down was denying Chief Brinkman was dead, and confidence that the perpetrators would soon be run to earth was high, but Clavel figured he could believe as much of that as he wanted to. Stupid, he thought, checking the time again and then scanning the scorpion's displays. What, they think Scuttlebutt isn't going to pass the word around anyway? And given the fact that at least half, probably a hell of a lot more than half, since the official report says less than half of the bastards got away, the other side sure as hell knows how much damage it did. I mean, go ahead and put a lid on it for the proles, fine. I'm all in favor of that. But don't hand a line of obvious bullshit to the guard, for God's sake. He shook his head. The brass had better get a clue pretty damned quick, in his humble opinion. So far, things hadn't been that bad here in Landing, since the Trifecta Tower attack, at least. But if the sort of crap happening in Granger and Brazelton ever did spread to the capital, it was going to get ugly. He didn't doubt the guard could deal with those MLF bastards if they'd only come out into the open and stop skulking around in the shadows like the cowards they were but that didn't mean they weren't going to do a lot of damage first. And the sooner General Yardley and the rest of President Lombroso's advisors figured that out and turned the guard loose on the resistance's sympathizers with open hunting licenses and no bag limit, the better it was going to be for all concerned. The last thing they needed was to let the MLF build up some kind of effective support structure in landing. In fact, a shrill, high-pitched buzz interrupted Captain Clavel's reflections. He jerked upright in his chair, reaching for his console, and his blood ran cold as the bright red icon flashed in his helmet visor's HUD. Laser! His brain screamed. We're being lazed, but... The five-kilo kinetic penetrator struck the scorpion's thinner, vulnerable rear armor at 30 kilometers per second within less than a centimeter of the target designation laser's aiming point. Not that it really mattered where it had hit, of course, no light AFV had the protection to resist that kind of attack, and Captain Peter Clavel, late of the Presidential Guard, united with the alloy and fuel of his light tank and the other two members of its crew in a fireball that towered against the night. Three more penetrators struck within half a second of the first one, killing the remaining scorpions of Clavel's platoon. More fireballs billowed, painting the faces of surrounding towers and buildings in bloody crimson light, 
and then the tri-barrels opened up, scything down the guard infantry troopers lounging in their unarmored personnel transports while they waited for their relief. One of the infantry non-coms, protected in the heavily sandbagged CP, had time to scream for support, but she never got through to HQ. She was still trying to get a comm response when one of the anti-tank launchers retargeted on the command post and turned it into an expanding cloud of dust, debris, and human remains. It wouldn't have mattered if she had gotten through, really. No one could possibly have gotten there in time to do any good. Besides, the elimination of Captain Clavel's security detail was only one of dozens of simultaneous attacks spread across the city of Landing. That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 36, read by Allison Johnson. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com. Thanks to Laura Haywood Corey and podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a simmering jar of revenge-laden napalm-like fury bursting over a field of those richly deserving their comeuppance. Along with a Bangalore torpedo of thanks to Tom Kratman, author of new Carrera novel Come and Take Them. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Bye.